Welcome to this week's edition of the First Take podcast. I'm Simon King, Executive Editor at First Word Pharma. On this episode, I chat with my colleague Virginia Lee to discuss US approval of a novel immunotherapy drug and third checkpoint inhibitor, Bristol-Myers Squibb's LAG3 inhibitor relatimab, which has been approved as part of a fixed-dose combination with Obdivo for the treatment of advanced melanoma. We also talk about positive data for a potential new treatment for ulcerative colitis, which was the subject of Pfizer's multi-billion dollar acquisition of Arena Pharmaceuticals in December, and the implications of these data on the treatment landscape and investor sentiment heading into the second quarter. Lastly, we hear from Dr. Adam Bruski from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, who spoke to First Words Michael Flanagan this week about recent clinical developments in the field of breast cancer and how these potentially practice-changing results could impact patients. Starting this week with Bristol-Myers Squibb's LAG3 inhibitor approval, Virginia, what's the significance of this? So relatlimab, as you mentioned, was approved as a fixed-dose combo with Updevo called Abdualag for frontline melanoma, and it's a big milestone because it's the first time in eight years that a new checkpoint mechanism has made it to market. If we think back to 2014, when the first of many PD-1 and PD-L1 inhibitors were approved, that really changed treatment practice and set off a rush of companies to find the next major immunotherapy target and expand the reach of tumors that could be treated with this kind of drug or combination of drugs. But it's taken a while to get here, and the LAG3 has been one of several leading contenders among these next-gen checkpoint targets. And now it's hopefully the first of several to cross that regulatory finish line. So where do we think the LAG3 mechanism fits into the existing treatment landscape? And is Opdualag expected to change treatment practice in the way that the PD-1 and the PD-L1 inhibitors have? So we have some survey results coming out soon from a poll that we ran with US and European oncologists. And the general sentiment there is that long-term data will be needed in order for Abdulag to displace the combination of Abdivo and Yervoy in this frontline melanoma setting. Um, so in pivotal studies, the efficacy of Abdivo and Relatlimab seem to be about in line with Abdivo yervoy and Abdulag seems to have a better toxicity profile overall. Um, however, Abdivo yervoy has been used for some time now, and physicians have become better at managing the side effects that come with that treatment regimen. And then more importantly, we have long-term data on Abdivo yervoy that we simply don't have yet with Abdivo and Relatlimab. We've seen in long-term follow-up studies that Abdivo and Yervoic together produces a long tail on overall survival and progression-free survival curves with an overall survival rate of about 50% after six and a half years. And we just have to wait and see how Abdulag will compare to that. So for now, the KOLs that we've spoken with see Abdulag as a clear replacement for patients being treated with a PD-1 monotherapy or perhaps in community hospitals where physicians have less experience managing your voice side effects. But for a duologue to really change practice, we will probably have to wait for survival data to mature. And in the meantime, what's next for Relatimab? So the LAG3 inhibitors being evaluated as a monotherapy and in combinations for several other tumor types, including lung cancers and colorectal cancers. 
And it's also in an early stage solid tumor study that's expected to read out this fall, and that will provide some insight into other indications that Bristol-Myers might focus on going forward. So the approval is just the beginning for this program. Back in December, Pfizer announced plans to acquire Arena Pharmaceuticals for $6.7 billion. The deal was finalized earlier this month, and then on Wednesday, we learned of positive phase three data for Arena's lead compound, Atrasmod. Simon, does this give us some kind of idea if Pfizer's money has been well spent? Yeah, I mean, I think things are pointing in the right direction. As you mentioned, the focal point here is Atrasmod, which is a once-daily oral S1P modulator. Now, it's being evaluated as a treatment for a number of inflammatory conditions, but the most advanced development is in ulcerative colitis, where there are currently two phase three studies underway. And Pfizer said Wednesday that the first of these has met its primary endpoint uh, by demonstrating clinical remission at week 12 versus placebo. It also said that Atrasimod has achieved all of its key secondary endpoints as well. At this point, we don't have detailed results, but perhaps equally important is Pfizer's confirmation that the safety profile in the phase three study was consistent with earlier phase two data. And why is that so significant with this particular drug? So there's already an S1P modulator that's approved for ulcerative colitis. It's Bristol-Myers-Squibb Symposia, and it was cleared by the FDA last May. Now, knowing that the Atrisimod data were imminent, we spoke to a US-based KOL earlier this week who confirmed that Zaposia is struggling to gain traction in the market. And that's partly due to cardiac safety concerns and the added burden of patient testing and monitoring that this requires. Now, when it announced the ARENA buyout back in December, Pfizer, perhaps understandably, said that Atrisimod had best-in-class potential. But this doesn't seem to just be corporate bluster. KOLs that First Word has interviewed about the ulcerative colitis treatment landscape over the past 12 months agree that based on early data, Etrasimod could definitely be a cleaner agent. So although Pfizer um, has provided only limited details that are positive, we do need to see some detailed results to ascertain whether these will translate to a less onerous label. And that's obviously assuming that the drug is ultimately approved. And of course, last week, the FDA approved AbbVie's Rinbach for ulcerative colitis. It did. And so the market is becoming increasingly crowded. Rinbach is a JAK inhibitor, which, of course, is a drug class that has faced um, several safety question marks over the past year or so. Now, the FDA, as a result of that, has approved Rinbach for second or later line use. So it will be interesting to see how AbbVie's drug is used, and in time, assuming that Atresimod gets to market, how the two products are positioned against each other. One thing that's worth noting is we spoke to a separate KOL this week who said that he was much more excited about Rinvoc um, than he was for Zaposia when it came to market last year. Pfizer, of course, has a lot of experience in the JAK inhibitor field, um, primarily through its first-in-class product, Zeljance which was also the drug um, which, which has raised these safety concerns. So I guess in that perspective, the deal to buy Arena can possibly be viewed as something of a pivot or maybe certainly a diversification away from the track class in the inflammatory disease market. So what are the bigger picture takeaways here with these data seemingly justifying the Arena deal? 
So I don't think it's a huge surprise that the data are positive, given what we saw in phase two. And I think the fact that Pfizer acquired Arena just a few months ahead of a phase three readout, and it was the only company that was bidding for Arena, speaks to its ability to probably stretch itself financially in terms of deal making. Given the substantial growth in revenues it's, it's seen over the past 12 months on the back of its COVID-19 vaccine. But it must have been pretty confident on the outcome uh, of these phase three results based on its due diligence. Obviously, what we haven't seen is a significant uptick in M&A since that deal or since the turn of the year. Investors were hopeful that with Pfizer and some other big pharma companies having a certain amount of financial firepower combined with what was perceived to be a strategic motivation that there would be a flurry of sizable deals in early 20, 2022 and it just hasn't happened and that's definitely weighed on sentiment but so too has been this sort of persistent lack of positive clinical data readouts and some commentators are saying they can't remember a period like this where there has been such a succession of setbacks and negative clinical uh, trial data readouts so in that sense Although this Pfizer data may not be that eye-opening in terms of, you know, broader drug development, it's not an oncology drug, it's not focused on a rare disease or gene therapy, or something that is a little bit more cutting edge, perhaps, it's a positive readout. And it's a readout that is tied to a relatively big recent M&A deal. So it could perk up sentiment around more activity on that front. And there's a lot of revenue tied up in these various inflammatory disorders. So... In general, I think it's probably good news for the sector. On Wednesday, as part of a series of live events that are exclusive to First Word Pharma Plus subscribers, Executive Editor Michael Flanagan spoke to prominent KOL Dr. Adam Bruski about recent developments in the field of breast cancer. Here's a clip from their conversation. Be sure to check out First Word Pharma to listen to the whole interview or to find out more about how to subscribe to First Word Pharma Plus. So Lindparza's label was just expanded in the US to include adjuvant treatment, as I mentioned, for BRAC mutated HER2 negative breast cancer. This was based on the phase three Olympia study showing a 42% improvement in DFS and more recently a statistically significant 32% improvement in overall survival. So first question, um, is there any question that this study has been or will be practice changing? Sure. Let's first start with a few premises here. The first one is that when you say 34% or 32% or 42%, those are relative decreases. Those are absolute decreases. So it's really important as oncologists and whether you think something's practice changing or not, we're not as interested in the relative decreases, but actually the absolute. And in the Olympia trial, I'm a co-author of it. Um, in the Olympia trial, at least for progression-free survival in the metastat or for disease-free survival, the amount of people that didn't recur, I think was probably in absolute terms about four or 5% for people who had very uh, extensive disease, say four or more nodes positive or three or four more nodes positive or node positive in general, it was probably about seven or 8%. So at three to five years, three years. And so the thing is that at least for progression-free survival, that's great. What was important that was presented at the ESMO breast meeting, I believe last, or the ESMO plenary, ESMO now has these uh, uh, kind of online plenary sessions. Um, there was actually a survival benefit, you know, which looked at be about probably three to 5%, which is significant. Um, that was all in the ER positive and in the ER negative subset. 
uh, that are BRCA positive on, by germline assays. Uh, additionally, um, uh, it was also in the adjuvant setting. So if someone had adjuvant therapy, uh, they would go on Lamparza for a year and they also would have the sur overall survival benefit. So it, this is really good. This is really good news. I mean, I think that a lot of us would have pushed to use this had it even not got FDA approved by its label, but it's nice that it got FDA approved because that allows AZ to market it. Uh, and it also allows payers to pay for it because it is fairly uh, expensive. But I mean, I think this is an advance and it is practice changing. For that, probably five, 10% of women uh, do, who do have BRCA associated disease.